Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and hands-on learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. My name is Sylvan, and I will be your host. Today, we cover the topic of internationalization. You already got to know Dorian and his entrepreneurial story in our previous episode. Today, we want to analyze why the technically better solution Mnemonic, founded by Dorian and his team, wasn't able to win against the Silicon Valley marketing machine Evernote, despite the technical advantages. Then we also talk about the right timing to go international and the blueprint to successfully execute this plan. When you talk to Dorian about these topics, you can really feel his passion for entrepreneurship, for building something truly great with a fantastic team. One of his answers actually really surprised me. In the last part of the interview, where Dorian answers rapid fire questions, he was being asked about whether one should aim for motivation or discipline. Now, based on my personal view of him, I would have expected a far different choice than the one he made. But see, that's the interesting part of all these interviews. You always learn something new, you always expand your perspective. It was a pleasure listening to Dorian's valuable and enthusiastic input, and if you're looking for additional content, search for Swisspreneur on Facebook and Instagram and follow us on the platform of your choice. Before we get started with the episode, I would like to introduce you to SBB Startup. If you think that your company is a good fit for the Swiss Railways, get in touch with them or learn more about their startup programs at sbbstartup.com. Dorian, welcome back to the second episode of Swisspreneur. Thank it's a you. Pleasure Lord. to have you here again. Keep me a bit longer. Of course. Today's topic is internationalization of your startup business out of Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And my first question is, what do Swiss startups get wrong repeatedly from your perspective in terms of internationalization for their business? I would start by saying, I don't know what the other startups get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not present in those other startups, right? Sure. Um, uh, I, I obviously have a lot of discussions with, with other entrepreneurs, other fellow travelers on that road. Um, <clears throat> there are two or three things that come to mind, right? Um, I think it depends very much on the type of business that you run, whether you need to even to go international. In the previous episode, we just spoke about my, one of my previous businesses called Local CH, which was a purely Swiss business, by definition. There was no plan to go there international. There was no plan to go international because we owned that Swiss space and we want to maintain that ownership of that Swiss space right. in, the, in, the, in the local search base space. But to be able to do so, you need to have a certain market size because otherwise it's just not an attractive business. Right? Yeah, correct. Or you need to have a good niche that can be be profitably exploited, right? Uh, from the bigger scale of things, obviously Switzerland as a yellow page market is a small niche, right? right. But it was worthwhile going, it was mm -hmm. worthwhile going for. Now, uh, in the business I run at the moment, um, this augmented intelligence solution provider called Scuro, um, the, 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 Swiss, the, the Swiss ecosystem is not necessarily the best place to start with because um, uh, larger companies, our primary um, customers, are a bit reluctant to engage in new technologies. Mm -hmm. While they may do lots of pilots and by today every big company has their accelerators and all that, right? It's That's just one thing. From there to go into production on thousands of seats with thousands of users is an entirely different game. 
And uh, many of the bigger Swiss companies are super reluctant to engage in that. Um, however, if you go to other countries, like say the US, um, the situation is wholly different, right? One of our largest, well, our largest actually, first customer, uh, the second largest American bank called Wells Fargo, um, uh, they um, chose us over, over, over other competitors um, at the time. And uh, even though we were much, much smaller than today. And that has a lot to do with the way Americans approach new technology, right? Um, in America, it's um, kind of like a commonplace to understand that if you want to get that competitive edge, you need to innovate. Mm -hmm. And if you have to innovate, uh, there are two ways. Either you do that internally, which, which, which is always a bit of a limiting thing because of resources, of time constraints, of your existing business, also of cannibalization effects of innovation towards your existing business, all other types of things, right? So they understand very well that innovation can come much faster from working with startups. So for them, it's an all natural thing to engage even with early stage startups to get that innovation edge that, they, that they're after. And that brought us to the US, right? Um, obviously, let's face it, uh, simply because you have a Swiss passport doesn't mean you do business. Uh, it, it, it might still have a reputation of being something of, with, with, that, that's built with, with love and quality. Um, and, and you have a reputation for punctuality and, and trustworthiness. But at the end, it's a global marketplace where you need to compete with um, as good as products from other places. So you need to differentiate yourself with uh, a focus on, on, on local customs, local traditions. So I think one of the key elements is, is that, and I don't say other Swiss startups do that wrong, but I observed that with a couple of larger companies here in Switzerland that went international, do business internationally, um, there is a tendency here sometimes to think we're the only ones who know how the world is run um, uh, and look a bit down on uh, people from other walks of life, from other parts of the planet, which obviously is totally wrong. Um, uh, intelligence is equally distributed across the entire planet. Right? So I think it's important that you localize early on because at the end of the day, even though, say, an American is more open to buy from a startup, an American loves to buy from an American because they talk the same language, it's the same frame of reference and all that. So I think one of the elements that you need to do early on is to really go for a localization strategy, which in itself is expensive, right? You need to hire local people, you need to build up a certain team size and, and all of that stuff. So international, internationalization is a, is a tough game. And how do you actually decide whether you should take this step and when the right timing is to take this step? I guess you need to, to have probably certain milestones achieved. Mm -hmm. You need to probably have some mm -hmm. like product market fit that you know, hey, we're not just going there wasting money and still trying to get to that product market fit phase. Mm -hmm. When is the right timing to think about internationalization? In our case, internationalization was 100% customer-led. Okay. So we did not go and plant the flag in XYZ place, be it London, be it Paris, be it whatever, Frankfurt, New York, because we fancied those towns. Uh, but in our case, internationalization was 100% customer-led. Um, in the moment we had an anchor customer of size, we localized. But how, how did you get them? Did they contact um, you because they found you through your website? Or how the did American that come? anchor customer, Wells Fargo, they found us actually through our website. Okay. and through a reference from Gartner, 
um, uh, some of our reference customers in the UK found us on the web. Um, and um, we start to engage with them. And, mm. and based on that, we then start to localize. Okay. And we're just about to do the same in Singapore, um, mm -hmm. where we just concluded a massive contract with a, with a, with a very big Southeast Asian bank, um, where we made it very explicit to them. If you give us a big contract, um, six months post that, that, that big contract being in place, and, and both sides know this is going to work for the next few years, right. we're going to localize. We're going to come with a local unit to Singapore to support you and make with you as an anchor customer an expansion play in Southeast Asia. And that's basically a win-win for both companies, right? Um, I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't engage us in the first place, right? If we don't bring them something of value, mm -hmm. um, they wouldn't make the effort to contract a company from halfway around the planet. Um, so I think we bring them value. Otherwise, we would not have won that contract. Um, on the other end, um, based on that relationship and their market presence and reputation, obviously it is for us a win-win. Mm -hmm. That if we can come in and say, well, the guys from that bank over there, they right. do that stuff with us. Um, uh, that gives you immediate uh, credibility on the street. Did you do anything else besides having a, a good website um, that let you to the first international clients? Because usually that just doesn't happen by coincidence, right? Um, we engaged early on, uh, first in the more informal phase before actually engaging with them on a, on a paid base with uh, what is critically important in the B2B space, uh, the analysts. Such as Gartner and Forrester, right? Um, most bigger companies um, vet their investment decisions through either Forrester or Gartner or, or somebody in that space. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you get good references by these folks, that helps. Um, however, it's an expensive game. It's an expensive game. Eventually, you need to um, buy those subscriptions, and they come in the tens of thousands of bucks a year. Okay. Uh, but that's certainly worth it. Um, we engaged and do ever more so with implementation partners, right? Um, that take us to places. Uh, here in Switzerland, as an example, we engaged early on with Simples and at Novum. We also start to engage with other technology partners uh, like Salesforce that also became subsequently an investor. Um, that obviously helped to spread uh, the word um, that are complementary measures. Uh, and, and then obviously a lot of outbound marketing, going to conferences, speaking engagements, and all the rest of it, so that you get a bit of uh, a bit of attention mm -hmm. by prospective customers. Yeah, because if if nobody sees your flag, basically they can also not contact you, right? Yeah, right. So it doesn't happen by coincidence. That's right. Yeah, if you don't know that it exists, you don't know what to ask for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then once you won the first clients, yeah. bigger clients, you decide to localize, meaning yeah. opening a local office there. What task do you? sort of locate there in the local markets and what tasks remain here in Switzerland? Yeah, so here in Switzerland is core engineering. Um, that's here. It's an international team of about um, uh, 20 people with about 15 different nationalities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that, however, is here in Switzerland. Um, what we localize uh, is, is field marketing, um, a bit of pre-sales, mm -hmm. sales, and a bit of post-sales. Okay. Those are the elements that we do localize. Um, so people um, obviously get a locally tailored marketing message, um, number one. Number two, um, they can deal with uh, local people. Um, if I need to go to New York, it's an eight-hour flight, right? 
sets me back uh, depending on how and when we fly six to six hundred bucks to a thousand bucks or so right mm -hmm. uh, eric my sales guy in new york for him it's a subway rate a ride uh, down to the financial center right. that's the difference right so and uh, number two and then number three obviously you want to make sure that um early on you engage with uh, prospects also from a technical level so we have a bit of pre-sales post-sales there to simply help deliver and make sure that it's really top-notch mm -hmm. because those first couple of wins determine your reputation in the market quite heavily okay and how big are your local teams that you set up there approximately or does that differ from market no to market? no no the, the blueprint is the, the blueprint is essentially the positions that you set right um, is the blueprint is is field marketing um, pre-sales sales post-sales so that's the minimum is about four people okay. right and then gradually you start to expand okay what's your biggest office that you have abroad um, same size in New York and London that's okay. about the same size yeah okay still pretty small um, but still sales I mean... cycles in the enterprise space are too long <laughs> yeah that's right and now I think you have uh, six offices all over the world now um, six no that's a bit too much Six, I, I saw six locations on your okay. website. Okay, that's maybe marketing. I think it's like New York, Zurich, Berlin, San Francisco, no, London. Berlin, no, 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 Munich. that's not on our website. Berlin is not our website. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. We have we have here Zurich, main. Uh, we have uh, we have uh, New York. We have we have London. Uh, then I have uh, two people working in Barcelona for us, and somebody in, in 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 Munich working for us. That's it. Okay, maybe that was also from an interview where we had one new client or something like that. I don't know, but still. How do you then collaborate together? I mean, you have offices in different time zones. Yeah. You have people working at different times with different sort of jobs that they need mm -hmm. to complete. But there still needs to be sort of a sync. Mm -hmm. How do you organize the teams? Mm -hmm. Do they mainly work remotely? Do you have like regular check-ins? How do you ensure the training and communication of all yeah. the different teams? Um, I, I call that uh, for a couple of years now sort of the sinus curve, sinus curve of management. Um, we obviously work in a very agile setup. Um, that is both on the engineering, I call that back of the company um, uh, setup, but also front of the company, that's marketing and sales and mm -hmm. delivery, um, where we have um, uh, in marketing and sales kind of like two, week, two weekly sprints. Um, in, uh, however, we meet every week um, and in engineering it's two weekly sprints. Um, that's the very lowest level, right? And then individually, they organize with in engineering a daily stand-up at noon. And, uh, in sales, we have um, we have a weekly catch-up call. We have individual sales update calls uh, in between. Um, so that's the individual level. That's where you get your tasks allocated, distributed, and we collaborate. And this needs to be done. That needs to be done. Silen, can you do that? I do this, etc. Step one. Then obviously we have kind of like um, uh, OKRs for the quarter. Um, um, where we in a monthly, bi-weekly bi actually, bi-weekly management meeting, keep track, right? And, and realign, rearrange if, if needed. Uh, and then uh, once every half a year, we take the whole company together uh, for a, a two-day offsite that we call Nutcracker, where we, uh, on the first half day, look a bit back. What have we done well um, over the past uh, six months? Uh, where is room for improvement? Uh, what could we do better? Um, uh, where are things we have simply overlooked we should really pay more attention to sure. the next six months and then for the next one and a half days we look forward okay. right we collaboratively collaboratively start to map out strategies for the future 
how to um, uh, go at XYZ topics, uh, be it market, uh, be it marketing, be it product, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, and after those two days, the whole company is on the same page, right? Um, and then can disperse again. Um, and then it goes down into those bi-weekly uh, sprints and then down to the daily tasks that you have. And then a half year later on, it maps up again. And that sinus curve of management we have, um, uh, we have, we have uh, put in place for a couple of years. And for us, it works. Do you have like any tools that you use to then track uh, the, the OKRs, for example, or enforce the communication? Are there any tools that, that help you specifically with these tasks and aligning the teams? Um, uh, if, if people of, of, of my own company here watch us, right, you might. Um, then you um, will have a big smile on your face if I tell you still on now the following. Uh, we have a simple rule, rule of documentation in our company. Mm -hmm. Everything customer related, that includes contacts, contracts, um, opportunities, whatever, right, goes to Salesforce. Mm -hmm. Everything engineering and project related goes to our Confluence slash Chira system. What is not in there does not exist. And if it does not exist, but the company would have profited from it existing and they simply were too lazy to put in there, I'm going to cut your head off, right? Um, that's the only rule we have. Yeah. Um, we want to have, and obviously we then apply our own dog food on top of it. So we have Square applied on top of our own data sources to have mapped um, uh, all our different um, informational elements to one customer and, and one prospect and all the rest of it. Um, that's the only rule we have. That's the only iron rule we have. For the rest, I trust that people do the right thing. We hire smart people who want to do smart things. I don't need to tell them what they need to do. They know that 99% of the time is much better than I do. And I would also like to sort of focus a bit on the management team. Mm -hmm. um, when you have your bi-weekly calls, as you mm -hmm. uh, mentioned before, are there like people sort of present in the meeting from every different country there? Or is your management team, yeah. basically, what are the parts of the management team? Who At is the moment, we have a functional uh, organization. So we have um, from the front to the back of the company, we have marketing, we have um, uh, BD and sales, we have delivery, we have engineering and a bit of back office. And that's also how the management meeting is constructed. It's those uh, couple of functions that are represented in management meeting. Okay. Um, now, any of those functions, uh, as an example, Patrice, uh, one of the founders sits in London and also represents obviously the London office and the UK market, right? Okay. At the same time. So there is a bit of a cross functionality there. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it wise with a company of just 30 people to have more structure than yes. that. It's, it's useless. But then basically the sales team in the US, for example, and in London, Plus in Zurich, they would then coordinate uh, amongst all yeah. the head of they sales. They report basically. to Miguel. They report to Miguel, my 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 chief sales officer, and Miguel manages um, the whole sales across the company. That's correct. Makes sense. Yeah, fundraising is also an important topic when it comes to going international. Basically, can you a bit elaborate on that? You mentioned Salesforce is invested in you. What role does fundraising play when you actually want to go international? Because that obviously also costs some money. That's correct. Um, look, fundraising is simply is simply the other side of, of the coin that says that your product doesn't sell enough yet to turn uh, enough profit to finance your expansion, right? Um, that's the polite way to say it, or the less polite way to say it is your money-losing operation. Mm -hmm. 
Now that per se is not bad because innovation per se at the beginning cannot turn profits, right? Some of the biggest successes um, in the digital space turned um, up with red numbers for years and years and years after, after, after them being founded. Take Salesforce. The first 10 years of Salesforce was a sea of red ink in Salesforce's um, P&L. They only started more recently to turn profits, right? Mm -hmm. Take Amazon. Amazon, since its beginning, it's just about even or, or, or red, but it grew like crazy. Obviously, they reinvested every dime they had into expansion, right? Um, and for a startup, um, the, the fundraising piece, I think, is well done if you do that according to what the stages you're in and, and, and try to attract the money that you need for those stages, right? Mm -hmm. At an early stage where you have an ID but not yet a product, uh, you want to probably fundraise a bit from people that can help you build that product and give you early market access, typically business angels, mm -hmm. right? Uh, once you have found that magic um, product market fit, so a question, when do you actually find that? How do you determine whether you are there or well, not? Well, you know, if you would know, you could say. <laughs> but whoever says to you, ah, I found product market fit according to plan, it's just a blunt lie, right? Um, when did you realize or think that you found it? With Spiro, the, 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 the upfront and, and frank answer is, we thought we found it two years ago and okay. misread the market by about two years. Okay. Right? Um, uh, the AI bandwagon obviously has left the station a, a couple of years ago at, in in terms of public perception. Mm -hmm. But I was I was just three months ago. I was in, in the US and and I was sitting down together with the chief data officer of one of the biggest banks on Wall Street, and I asked him a simple question: So, how many operational AI solutions do you have in place, either home built? in-house or acquired through some relationship with whatever vendor you have. You know what his answer was? Single digit. Yeah, maybe two. Yeah. Where are they? Let me guess. In risk? Yeah. One is operational in risk and the other one is about to go online in risk if it works out with the last adjustments. So truth is that AI obviously is in everybody's mouth, mm -hmm. um, but outside those big poster childs like DeepMind um, or, or like Siri and others, in, in the daily routine of, of companies, um, outside the innovation offices, had, it, it, it has not made much legroom in the last three years. Mm -hmm. it's, it's only starting. And uh, I often compare that to, to what I saw maybe in the early 90s and mid-90s and late-90s with, with, the, with the advent of the internet age. and as an example, content management systems, right? If you went, I remember that, um, we were invited by the Exco of um, the UBS Switzerland. When was that? Maybe in 96, seven, when I did my PhD in St. Gallen, right? Because we had built their first web page, mm -hmm. And as well at the Institute, uh, colleagues have put together what was called Telecounter, one can still find that today online, which was the first prototype for online banking, online online e-banking for consumers, right? You know what they told us? Nobody wants to do online banking. They want to come into our wonderful uh, um, bank, uh, bank locations, um, uh, or at least at max take it from an automatic teller machine, right? Mm -hmm. That was the maximum. And 
if you told them, by the way, the web will become your most important communication channel, they said, no, 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 you're crazy. No, you're crazy. <laughs> we, we all know how that story ended, right? Yes. You all know how that story ended. And I don't want to single out that particular bank. It was the same for any other bank that I right. had to deal with at the time through my work at Namix. And, and we were sort of in a similar situation, right? The early stage prototypes, pilots going on everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but the big day-to-day -day improvements are only start to to, to come into, into production now, right? Um, that it will come into production is no question, no doubt. Mm -hmm. um, I can see that in our own work. We, we work for a couple of companies where we see the, the bottom line impact it has. This will be irresistible eventually for everyone, right? Uh, for one company, we help them reduce their mean time to resolution in terms of ticket. So it comes in a ticket of something went wrong. We, we, we reduce that by about 30%. Now, why do we know the number of 30%? Because we did an A-B test. We gave it to some and we didn't give it to some others. And then we simply checked um, uh, mean time to resolution from those and, and those folks, right? And we even could give them the same tickets, 30%. That's irresistible because it translates directly into cost savings of epic proportions if well done. And even more importantly, it uh, translates into net promoter score improvements because you have a better service uh, level sure. that you can guarantee to its customers. That's irresistible, right? Mm -hmm. So now, why doesn't it not happen faster? Two things, right? Um, AI is one of those technologies that you cannot really touch. Have you ever touched an AI algorithm? No. And even if you have seen it on screen, especially those neural network elements. Have you ever seen why they come up with that particular solution? So what you need, you need to establish a level of trust in the capacities and capabilities of these new technologies, right? Because obviously if you don't trust that this system, this, this recommendation is a good one, uh, you can be terribly afraid of, 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 of the business going overboard, right? right? So you need to have a deep understanding of what you do here. You need to have a deep level of trust that this what the claims to do is really also from an operational level what it will do, right? right? Because if that goes wrong, you might close your business. And that in itself lengthens adoption cycles, even though eventually it will happen. Eventually it will happen. And then looking back now, when you thought you had a product market fit, you already went international, basically. Was yeah. that too early, looking back now in retrospect? We followed our customers. Our okay. first biggest customers were in, more international than Swiss, mm -hmm. and we simply followed them. So and I'm happy, for, I'm happy for that, that we made the move to the US, that we made the move to the UK and followed some of our wonderful customers and, and helped them build out that um, uh, know-how about how to deploy AI in operational setups. Yeah? I couldn't have done that in Switzerland. Switzerland is a wonderful place to, to develop such things, but not necessarily an early adopter market. Mm -hmm. So you were really like customer driven to, to do the internationalization. If it was not that way, would you have a sort of a number or a critical mass in your mind where you think this critical mass or this point where your business stands there is a good timing for thinking about internationalization if it's not driven by your customers? Um, frankly speaking, the upfront and frank answer is I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I have not thought about that. I give it a thought. That's good. So we, we can let people yeah. think think about that on their own. You also mentioned um, distribution partnerships um, that you had. Are there any other key partnerships that you need to look out for if you're going into a new market? Of course, you have your employees, but besides mm -hmm. that, 
what are the key partners that you should have on board for going international in a good way? Yeah. Um, to quote my friend uh, and co-founder Tony, uh, stand on the shoulder of giants, right? Um, I can't beat Salesforce. I can join Salesforce. Um, nobody needs to be explained what Salesforce is in the ICT sector. They all know, right? If I can go and say, well, we work with Salesforce, I'm an ISV partner to them, and here's the solution that we do with them. By the way, they even thought this so interesting as to have invested in us as a company. That gives you immediate credibility. And in the same way, we sought out partnerships with other, and we, we differentiate that in sort of, of data partnerships. So we have struck partnerships with the likes of, as an example, Refinitiv, the new name of Thomson Reuters. Um, the data division of Thomson Reuters. Um, uh, we're um, doing the same with Dow Jones and FactSet and a couple of others. Mm -hmm. um, that's data partnerships. We have struck um, technology partnerships in the same stage like I, um, Salesforce. We have done that with ServiceNow. We're just about to do that with um, uh, Microsoft and have done it with Amazon. Um, we use those services, um, part of the cloud infrastructure of, of, of this world. Um, and then we also have started to do that with implementation partners. Um, I spoke about uh, Simples and Netnovum, I believe, already here in Switzerland as an example. We have added to that uh, other, other complementary uh, partners like, um, like Exceed as an example, fantastic BI consultancy and product company uh, where we add our stuff to make a full 360 circle in terms of data um, possible. Um, we are starting to do that also more and more so with international implementation partners of the size of an Accenture. Uh, with Accenture, that partnership is public. DXC, as an example, the former HP Consult, came to us and selected us over others. So did PwC. And all those are obviously uh, large um, implementation partners for us. So they implement our solution. Also, they have access to markets and customers that we would not have access ourselves. And it's, it's the differentiation play that we do here, right? We bring them something um, that makes it uh, for them attractive to go with to their customers, do more with data, uh, that gives them an opportunity to engage with their customers more thoroughly and give them a business benefit that they could do without um, our product. And, and for us, obviously, it gives us um, credibility in the marketplace. If you can go to a customer and say, well, Accenture is backing this. Um, uh, you wouldn't do that if they would not have vetted you thoroughly and, and think it's a good solution. Right. Can you also walk us through how such a successful partnership looks like in practice? Like, do these consultancy companies, for example, do they pay you any retainer that they can also have your solution in their portfolio? <laughs> Are they sort of resellers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also how you keep up with the communication, because there I think it's the same if you don't train them and are on top of their minds. They might have your solution in the portfolio, but don't actively implement it or sell it. That's so right. That's how right. does that work? That's right. Partners are more generally um, followers rather than leaders, right? Uh, for somebody selling person days, um, it's important to be able to sell person days. And obviously, if you have the choice to sell person days and improve on an existing technology with a large scale implementation um, portfolio and, and track record, that's much easier than if you need to bet your hat on a new technology with an unproven tracker and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so we're obviously more in that um, latter category than in the first yet, right? That might change over time. So for them, it is really to recognize that with us and the partnering with us, and, and, and um, I'm, I'm, I feel extremely proud and privileged that they come now to us and, and, and seek us out to partner with them, mm -hmm. um, that they do see a competitive advantage in doing so. 
but then it's all up to you. You need to be on a daily base on their back. Uh, you need to train them. You need to go to customers with them and so on and so on and so on. At the end, it's a question of mind share, right? At the, at the end, you can do so many things between 8 um, a.m. and 5 p.m. Mm -hmm. And um, if you want to be successful with them, you need to be part of that daily routine of them. And that only happens over time by investing, by investing. Mm -hmm. It's a long-term game. It's a long-term game. Well played, it plays out. It pays out because it helps you scale in ways that you couldn't scale yourself. Right. And from what I understand, you also do both. You have like strong partnerships and implementation partners, but you also have your own sales force on the ground. That's correct. With local offices. That's correct. Why did you decide to do both and not choose one of them? Um, as I outlined, partners are followers rather than leaders. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to feed them the first projects. I simplify here a bit. Um, that is, you need to lead the market. You need to lead the market, and therefore you need to be um, there. With, you need to be there yeah. with your own with your own resources. Uh, you need to be the one that goes in there, and especially the first um, bigger implementations that will serve as references, right? If you're not there yourself, but there is always a partner between you and the end customer, there are so and so many additional elements that can go wrong. Mm -hmm. I'd rather remove that from the equation right at start. So in each of those core markets, the first bigger implementations, I insist on us doing that ourselves. Even if some partners then uh, cry foul, um, as in terms of, ah, oh, we want to partner with you, blah, 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 blah. I try to explain to them, look, you can bring your people on board of that project. As an example, that Southeast Asian bank that I spoke about, we bring a Synecron, a partner, on, on board. Right. We will train them, but we will, together with them, implement that. Mm -hmm. Because at the end, if it doesn't work out, the partner has always an excuse. Well, you know, new technology, unproven, blah, 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 blah. Sure. And uh, you, well, you need to I cannot that. hide, right? Well, yes. I cannot hide. If it doesn't work out, they will say, hey, your product sucks. Yeah. So we want to turn it upside down. The first couple of projects, us, lead, success, focused 100%. Uh, we start to phase in partners, to train them, to enable them to, in the longer term, do that themselves. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way we build it. But that might be the only well, that, that might be good for us. I don't say this is good of for course. anyone else, but for yeah. us, that model works. But we're also talking about your blueprint, so I think uh, that's, that's our blueprint. Point. Yeah, exactly. That's our blueprint. Is there anything that you would like to add to the topic of going international that we have not covered yet? Do it. Do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do it. Don't think too much about it or are afraid of it. Just do it. No, no. The world is flat. There are fantastic people elsewhere. Um, go and seek them out. Do business with them. It's a fantastic opportunity we have. We, we live in a fantastic moment uh, where it is um, much easier than ever before to, to travel internationally, to engage internationally. And I only can encourage you to do that. It also gives you immediately a totally different perspective on your own country yeah. in a positive sense. Yeah. So just do it. I would also like to focus one more time on the folk, uh, on the topic of fundraising, yeah. of finding international investors. Yeah. You mentioned Salesforce. Uh, they are invested in you. Uh, I think you also have international business angels that supported you in going international. So my question is, how do you actually find international investors? Because if you look at business angels, for example, it's well known that they mainly invest in local businesses mm -hmm. that are pretty close to where they are. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about that? How, for example, how did the contact to Salesforce Ventures emerge and how did they actually get them as investors yeah. on board? Yeah, um, I have had the privilege to be um, supported by a number of exceptional um, business angels um, that we met along the way through inbound requests. Alex Alt as an example. 
living today in uh, Philadelphia, um, wrote to me one day and said, I found your business online. I find it interesting. Would you be interested in a dialogue? That's how it started some six years ago, uh, something like that. Um, in other cases, um, it was the acquaintances of acquaintances that kind of like joined, obviously, that network effects that, that always helps. And uh, through that, we also got uh, simply an introduction to Salesforce, nothing more, right? We simply got an introduction to their London office, to Alex Kayal. Um, and um, um, again, you know, Salesforce needs to explain what they do. What they explain to us is that they invest in companies that do things adjacent to their core proposition, where they think um, it would be good for them to have uh, an early um, access um, to to these technologies and, and to see whether it works or not, right? Not necessarily to acquire them. Salesforce doesn't acquire every company they invest in, but what they see is um, as an as an opportunity to learn from the marketplace as well. And in our case, we fitted pretty much the bill that they set out at the time. They had four four pillars, if I remember correctly. One was um, analytics, one was AI, um, one was mobile, and um, one was, was business operations. Um, mobile, we don't fit necessarily, but AI analytics and business operations, that's exactly what we do, right? With our inside systems in conjunction with Salesforce. And that made it an interesting play to them. And, and I, I enjoy working with them. It's a fantastic company. Would you say it's critical that you have international investors if you want to go international? Or could you also do it? It helps. Okay. But it's not mandatory from your perspective. Um, look, at the end of the day, everybody would want to have a, a first-rate Silicon Valley investor, right? But then let's face it, right? Uh, those folks are not used to the Swiss legal system. Um, we are not used to theirs. It makes it more complex. Um, if these guys have a chance to invest an hour down Sand Hill Road, that's infinitely preferable to invest 12 flight hours away, whatever it is, right? Um, so, uh, you know, there are a couple of bigger companies, bigger startup companies coming out of Switzerland that have by now reached critical mass to attract this type of attention to make this type of investments possible. Uh, the most prominent of the most recent months is obviously Get Your Guide, right? Funny story, by the way, we gave them at Local CH their first bigger local footprint where we let them test out a few IDs. Nice. Uh, um, long time ago. Um, and by now they have built this fantastic business, um, unbelievable. Um, and obviously with their size and traction, they can attract massive um, inbound investment. Um, then in Switzerland, obviously you have a number of people that have attracted international investment if they're tied to universities, ETH, mm -hmm. Lausanne and Zurich have wonderful reputations internationally. Um, just to make one point, maybe you have seen the other day, um, there is this Hyperloop challenge by Elon Musk, right? Um, the winners were the guys from Munich, but in the first four, the final four, out of the final four, there were um, two teams from Switzerland. One from ETH Lausanne, one from ETH Zurich, and ETH Zurich came second. I mean, it's again incredible. It's incredible! Right? It's incredible! If you simply take the math and kind of like... Uh, a Gaussian, uh, Gaussian normal distribution, it's impossible, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's against the odds, right? Um, obviously, that helps in, in terms of, of investment. And in our case, well, we, we, we have done it a bit differently. As I said, acquired some early business angels that helped us acquire a bit of um, structure, uh, structured, uh, a bit of, of institutional financing through Salesforce, Finch Capital. Um, that helped us a lot. Mm -hmm. 
one last thing that I would like to ask you. You've seen many different uh, offices. You are uh, operating in, in the United States. You have uh, Salesforce as a US investor, but you're still based here in Zurich in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I think based on your experience, there are sort of learnings or things that you notice, especially in terms of the risk assessment of these two different uh, types or cultures. Mm -hmm. So how would you sort of differentiate the risk assessment of a European person and of an American person? Before we signed that big contract with uh, Wells Fargo a couple of years ago, <clears throat> I went to see the responsible person um, on Wells Fargo side, uh, Christine. Um, she, she was at the time the responsible for that program at the company. And before signing a contract, I said, Christina, I have two questions to you. Yeah, go. Um, and I, I said to her, well, you're going to sign a contract. You're going to sign a contract that is totally uneven. You're a big company. I'm a small company. How, 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 how shall that work? And she said to me, look, Dorian, this is a... And she laughed at me first. She said, Dorian, this is a typical European question. No <laughs> US startup ever would have asked that. And I said, yeah, I, I come from where I come from. That's the question I have in my head. Look, um, and she um, is in Charlotte, uh, which is a rural area, more rural than New York, surely. And she said, look, it's as rural probably here as where you come from. So I explained it to you. We chose to partner with a startup because we see that with that, we can get innovation into the bank that we desperately need to make an impact in the business space. So is that now an uneven conversation? No, I need you as much as you need me. Otherwise, we don't get this going. What's your second question? And I said, well, the second question is, what do you do if we go out of business? Because as a startup, even with your contract, I'm not in safe waters, right? And she laughed again and said, this is again such a typically European question. Um, I mean, essentially, this was the question about risk. How do you deal with risk, Christine, right? And she said to me, look, look, Dorian, we have an escrow agreement, which we have, right? A standard software uh, sure. setup, right? So if you guys go bankrupt, what happens? I will have a team that probably wants to look for a job, right? What do I need to maintain and operate this thing for another year or so till I find replacement? Two, three guys? What does that cost me? All in, half a million a year? You know my business plan on that investment. Multiple that. What's the question? The upside is far superior to the downside, and the downside is protected. More questions? No. Can we sign? <laughs> and for me, that was kind of like the embodiment of a different approach of um, dealing with um, innovation, dealing with startups, dealing with um, um, companies from different backgrounds, right? What she expressed in that little exchange is um, a conscious um, decision to partner with um, uh, smaller, more innovative companies to bring an edge to a larger company, number one. And number two, um, look at the opportunity of that partnership rather than the potential downside of the partnership, right? Whereas elsewhere, I've seen quite sometimes the opposite, right? One would rather focus um, on what can go wrong um, than what can go well. And I think that's the big difference. And I learned a hell of a lot of that. And I think these stories are stories that you only learn if you go international. Uh, probably. Before we end the episode, I prepared six rapid fire questions for you. 
So basically, I give you a statement yeah. with two or three options that you can choose from. Yeah. Please make a choice and then explain your choice in one or two sentences. Good. Are you Go ready? Go ahead. United States, Europe, or China? Europe. Because of its diversity, because of its current place in the world. Uh, not too sure about itself, but if you look at it, a wonderful place with so many opportunities and um, a, a gigantic future if well done. Motivation or discipline? Motivation. Why? Um, uh, for discipline, you can go to the army. <laughs> it helps to be disciplined, right? right. Uh, let's be very, very straight here. Um, uh, there is no startup, there is no big company uh, that is super successful without people doing a lot of work in a very disciplined way, mm -hmm. right? But the difference is, uh, especially around startups, at the beginning, you only have an idea. And if you want to make um, that idea reality, um, motivation to contribute to that bigger goal um, is a much stronger driver than any disciplined um, approach to it. Right. Work-life balance or 80-hour work week? Um, I think I answered that in the previous question. <laughs> 80-hour work week. Yeah. If you go for work-life balance, go to a big company, easy living and all that. Uh, get divorced at 40 because you start to do stupid things and become annoyed and bored. Um, uh, startups are not work-life balance things. But no. a hell of a lot of fun, right? Not always. Not always, but in the end, you had you have stories that you can tell your, your kids probably. Well, that's my choice, right? Um, I will forever have the more interesting stories to tell um, uh, to, to, to my child and maybe eventually even her children um, than a dude uh, that spends his life in a mid-management function in a big company. Yeah. Oh, yes, I have the most more interesting stories. And at the end, to quote uh, Aborigines uh, out of Australia, it's all about the song lines. It's all about the song of life, right? So I have the more interesting song of life. I think that's a good approach to life. Small 10-people teams or big 100-people teams? Both fun for different reasons. Mm -hmm. right? If you more have to choose one? Um, I'm probably more comfortable in the smaller team. Okay. Yeah. And why? Um, tradition. I've uh, spent most of my professional careers rather in smaller teams. Mm -hmm. Whenever it became a couple of hundred people big, I started eventually something new. Right. Bootstrapping or VC money? Bootstrapping, preferable but not always possible. Local offices or remote teams? Um, difficult to answer. Depends, again, what you'd want to do. Depends on the situation. It's not a one is better, the other is worse, right? Um, eventually, there is one common thread, whether remote or local. Uh, you need to have a beer with a fox once and then. All important things happen past midnight. <laughs> Awesome. Dorian, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so Again, much. it was a pleasure having you here for the second episode. And so wish much. you all the best and lots of success for your future and for your company's future too, of course. Thank you so much. And congratulations on the series you put up. Fantastic work you do. Thank you very much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the content, we would be thrilled to receive your rating on Apple Podcasts. That way you not only support Swisspreneur, but also help other entrepreneurs discovering the show and finding more valuable information on how to run their businesses. 
Next week, we will already be back with an all new episode of the Swisspreneur Show. So we hope to see you again then for a new episode.